you know, the funny thing is, is that one of the funny things about my interview with Jean Loring was that she nearly went backwards us over tea kettle on one of those awful chairs you used to have. She had a, like a Whoa! moment and she was so cool about it. <laughs> the number, last year was a record year for accidents that happened on stage. <laughs> the number of, say, of risk um, reports that I had to fill out for accidents that happened on stage, someone literally fell off the back of the stage mid-presentation. And I just yeah. don't understand how this is happening. No, I mean, a friend of mine uh, that happened to in London, uh, he, he was, uh, this is years ago, he was at a, speaking at a conference and made a um, you know, sweeping gesture to indicate the, the strength of feeling on a technical matter. And, and in so doing, took a step to the side, fell off the stage, and he, he, he left on a stretcher with a completely ripped back. He had to delay his flight back from London to the States. Oh no. And you know, he's, he's fine. Well, on that note, thank you very much for joining us at Facilitate Talks this week. I'm Michael Adenio. We'll never Bunyan. know what that note was, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Michael Adenia, Portfolio Director of Facilitate, and you are? I am Anthony Davies, Founder and Chief Executive of Dark Horse Consulting. Good afternoon, Anthony. And how is San Fran today? You know, uh, I'm, I'm happy to say as I stare out the window that the freeways uh, are getting busier. I'll give you a, a, a real live shot there of a California freeway with, uh, can you see it? Yeah, I see. I can see an ice truck of some sort moving down the hill, uh, down the road there. Yeah, that's people going backwards and forwards to work in California on this day in July. Um, that was good. Uh, and, and, you know, we're, we're emerging unsteadily from, from lockdown, I guess is the best way I can put it. Yeah. Um, yeah. some states are going in the wrong direction. Other states are perhaps not going in the wrong direction as quickly. Uh, but we don't know what the future will bring. Uh, so here we are. Yeah, exactly. All you can do. And yourself. Keep London Town, not even London Town. Um, South Wales is doing, South Wales is doing okay. I mean, look, I, I haven't left a three mile radius in five months now. So, um, There's so many yeah. comments there, Michael, and I just don't know where to start. So let's uh, go and introduce some interviewees, please. <laughs> so if this is the first time that you're joining us, Facilitate Talks is a socially distanced talk show for the Advanced Therapies community, where Anthony and I usually are joined by two guests to discuss the big issues in cell and gene therapy. Um, but today we've got um, the second in our series of Women in Advanced Therapy Specials. And um, Anthony, who have we got today? So today uh, we have Jean Loring. Um, Jean is the co-founder of Aspen, Aspen Neurosciences. Uh, and the conversation we have today is between her and uh, Jana Studemeyer. Now, you've actually interviewed both Jean Loring and Jana Studemeyer on the stage at Facilitate, haven't you? Was it in the same year? Or were they no, no, it wasn't, was it? It was, uh, 
what seems like 15 years ago now, uh, Michael, I, I, it might even have been the first year in Miami or close to it. For, Those for distant years. days when we used to see each other physically. I, know, I, know. Events. I think I, I even touched you once or twice. That, 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 look, Unthinkable. Cut, we'll cut that. <laughs> I didn't have a face mask on. <laughs> I think those, back to me now. were those the years when you demanded were those the years when you demanded us to to keep a gin and tonic for you on stage those were the gin and tonic years Michael yeah yeah David McCall I need, I need, a, I need a face mask with a straw for my gin and tonic now <laughs> yeah so um yeah so we got Gene Loring and um and yeah Aspen Neurosciences so yeah what 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 do you know about Gene and, and Aspen? I mean, I, 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 what I know about Gene and Aspen is that there was so much good stuff behind uh, the, the Gene and Aspen story. Aspen's a great company, you'll hear a bit about it. Uh, but her uh, genetics and epigenetics research, her research on Parkinsonism, MS, autism, uh, the, the, the best thing about Gene is the stem cell zoo. Uh, which I think we've touched on in the interview, and that, that's exactly what as amazing as you think it might be. Um, San Diego it, Zoo, right? Well, I, yeah, I mean, it is with San Diego Zoo. That's right, exactly right. She's down in San Diego in their conservation uh, research it, yeah. unit. And yeah, the only person to have um, made iPS cells from rhinoceroses. Uh, it's, it's that crazy yeah. and that innovative and, uh, you know... Um, might even work, uh, to, to paraphrase a friend of mine, it might even have the additional advantage of working. Uh, so Jean is a polymath, she's a, a woman of letters, uh, you know, just, just an amazing person to have spoken to. And yeah, and then, so you've got her at one extreme that is trying and doing the, um, the previously unattempted, while you've had Jana um, on the other end of this interview who is taking stem cells to space so yep. two quite remarkable um women in our sector that are doing things that people really are you know really don't do and and uh, it is far from the norm and jana again was an amazing interviewee because uh you know space tango and taking cells to space i mean that's all crazy and great and fascinating uh, but she was a decade at what for people who've been in this field as, as long as long as I have remember as an iconic company of advanced tissue sciences uh, which was manufacturing just 10 centimeter squared rafts of uh, expanded fibroblasts in the 1990s uh, also down in San Diego so it's not like she, th these are not people that have jumped on the, on the bandwagon uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, they're, they're veterans of the field with multiple successes and failures behind mm. them, which is what's make, what makes it so interesting, Michael. Yeah. Well, without further ado, you're gonna have, you're gonna listen to a fantastic interview here with two people really at the top of their game. Um, and yeah, let's roll on the interview. Sounds good. Boom. And interview happens. Da, 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 da. Christ, it's been so long, Michael. What happened in the interview? Uh, oh, should I, should I do a quick, quick reminder? Get my notes up here. 
So I put a couple of bullet points in there because um, Jean um, is really quite forthright in talking about how hard it was for women, yeah. uh, how hard it, it has been in general for women. Um, you know, I think she said that you know, many people say, you know, women have to work. There's a, there's a cat sniffing the underside of my car um, out of the window there. Very odd. Um, That's okay. <laughs> there's, um, there's no, nothing. Sniffing the underside of something else for a minute, but <laughs> that, that might have been, that might have had to be edited, Michael. So thank you, Jean Loring, for joining us today. Um, it's fantastic to have some time with you. Just to start off, I wanted to just give a little bit of background. Um, so I'm going to take a second just to fill everyone in on you and what you have done, which is phenomenal. So Jean is a world-renowned stem cell scientist and co-founder of Aspen Neuroscience. Um, her work really provides the method, methods for differentiation of autologous-induced pluripotent stem cells. Um, into dopaminergic neurons, which form the basis for Aspen Neurosciences. Jean has a wealth of biotech industry experience, including founding Arcos Bioscience, now Biosite, and leading the development of HANA Biologics, GenFarm International, Molecular Diagnostics and Insight Genomics. She was founding director of the Stem Cell Center in the Center for Regenerative Medicine at the Scripps Research Institute, and co-founder of the Stem Cell Center at the Sanford Burnham Previs Discovery Research Institute. Jean is a professor emeritus for, at the Scripps Research Institute, scientific advisor for Summit for Stem Cell Foundation, a research fellow of the San Diego Zoo, adjunct professor in human genetics at Sanford Burnham Previs Discovery Research Institute, and adjunct professor in the School of Public Health in San Diego State University. Jean has provided advanced training in human stem cell biology for more than 400 scientists over the last 15 years. She's author of the Human Stem Cell Manual and has an issued patent for Pluritest, a novel bioinformatic test for pluripotency that's publicly available and has been used over 30,000 times globally. So, fantastic to have you here with us today, Jean. And I know that you're going to provide some very insightful comments as we talk about influential women in advanced therapies today. Yeah, thank you, Jana. That was a, that was a great uh, introduction. Uh, well, your background is fantastic, and for those who don't have the opportunity to know you as well as I do, I want to be sure that they understand that you touch a broad variety of areas and have really made a difference in the field of stem cells and advanced therapies. So what I wanted to talk about today, a couple of different areas, you know, get your perspective really on what it's like to be a woman in the advanced therapies field and maybe some of what you have seen as changes over time in your career. A little bit about sort of what the changes in the field have looked like in terms of what's really stood out to you over that time. And then really maybe a little bit on where you even see the next breakthroughs coming from. So let's kind of start first with what it's like to be a woman in advanced therapies. Um. Well, there aren't that many of us. I mean, I think that's probably a given. Um, it's uh, being a woman in science in general is, is um, I think, I don't think we could argue that it's more difficult than if you fit in with the majority, which is almost entirely male. Um, and whatever, whatever qualities that uh, women who survive in that environment are, um, they are 
not, uh, they're, they're far more challenged. And I, I think there are some, sometimes people say that you have to be uh, five times better or twice as good as the, as the man who's in, your, in competition with you to be able to succeed. And I, I would say it's more like 10 times um, because in order to be recognized, the higher you go on the ladder, the, the sort of the, the X factor increases. Yeah. And I'm assuming, you know, it's really interesting because even the articles that have been written recently about COVID-19 and countries where women leaders were present and maybe how they handled it a little bit more appropriately. But, you know, I think that it really rings true on the science side because science is such a male dominated field. And certainly, you know, I, I'm hopeful that over your career, you may have seen that things have advanced a little bit from where you started and where you are today, but I know it's still a challenging playing field. Yeah, and I think it depends on your context. Um, obviously, when I was a graduate student, I've been doing this a really long time. Uh, women in science were really rare. There were no faculty, no women faculty at the institution where I got my PhD. Really? Um, science. Yeah, I know it's, it's hard to believe now, but that was the norm then. Um, I had a, a male um, PhD advisor who I had to overcome his reluctance to have a woman be a, a, in a PhD program and to earn a PhD because I was his first. Um, and then onward, it was always, a blue, I mean, it was always clearly different. You kind of have to put blinders on and, and just um, move forward as if it really doesn't make a difference that you're a woman. That um, you are, if you're qualified, then you should be hired. And if you have that, if you keep that sort of assumption, I think that you'll write your resume differently. You'll be, uh, you'll write it, uh, men and women write their resumes differently. Uh, men tamed, uh, claim to take more credit for, for things that they've been involved in, women less so. Um, I think I've, I've evolved over time to be um, more able to claim um, my, uh, what I've actually done myself and less uh, in some contexts um, telling people that I just had a small role in something when that wasn't true. Uh, but also, I still believe that you need to give credit to your colleagues because we don't exist in this world without our collaborators and our colleagues. Um, nobody can do science on their own anymore. So you need to, I, I have needed to uh, put together a sort of a, a family of trusted scientists, people that uh, treat me as an equal and um, who I can help and can help me. And I think that's probably the best way to succeed these days in science, in any, any field of science, is to, is to make it into a, um, uh, not, not just about you, it's about your, the people that you surround yourself with. Uh, no, I mean, I, I absolutely, you know, and it's interesting for me because when I think back on sort of the work that I've done on the industry side and sort of the changes that I've seen there, and sometimes I think in the early stages, I didn't even stop to think that there was an issue with the fact that I was a woman, right? But there was, and clearly looking past that, I think that's great advice for other women in the field to sometimes just ignore that and keep going on and doing what you're doing because you're a great example of how that will lead to ultimate success and you'll have great opportunities ahead of you if you don't let that stand in your way. So yeah, fantastic, fantastic advice.
No, I appreciate that. I've, um, it's taken me a long time to learn all this, so um, I'm happy to share it, um, and I hope it works for other people. I think you do have to step back every once in a while and realize that you are different from your colleagues, and um, and you can there are a couple of choices you can make at that stage. You can either uh, complain about it, which of course never gets us anywhere, or you can rise above it, or you can get around it, or under it, or, or through it. Um, but it, you will always be different. You're not going to be one of the bros. Um, in, in academic institutions, the, there is a, often a bro culture. And no matter what you do, you're not going to be a bro. So you have to establish yourself sort of in a parallel, uh, a parallel track in which you are, oh, well, not a bro, but still a really good scientist and somebody I want to work with. Well, and maybe sometimes, like, I often think that embracing that difference instead of looking at the downside of not being part of that maybe exclusive group really gives you the opportunity to do things in a different way. And so, you know, I tend to be kind of a glass half full person anyway, and look at things from the objective of, you know, celebrating that difference, right? And not being concerned about feeling like I'm not part of the mainstream because it's okay to stand alone and it's okay to have your point of view. And I think that helps to add and broaden the discussion even what you mentioned on collaboration. I mean, I think, you know, you often hear people in pharma today talk about the fact that the things that are left to solve are the hard diseases, right? So you can't do them on your own, even if you're a very successful large pharma company, you need to come together. And I think as people start to recognize that it's good science that drives it, doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman, but somebody who's going to solve that problem, that's important. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And if uh, there, are, there are clearly, um, there are still remnants of this, uh, this hair professor kind of, of, um, of attitude or, or culture in, um, even in U.S. Uh, uh, universities and other academic institutions. And it is really frustrating to, um, when you're trying to mentor young women in uh, science and you realize that they're in a position in which they will have to either leave their, the person who's their uh, supervisor um, or they're going to have to figure out some way to deal with it. And I think usually the solution is that you have to, at some point you have to just walk away. And that's usually the, the way that people are successful. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, but in biotech, it's interesting because I've, I've, um, I've been in biotech for almost exactly an equal time as I've been in, ac in academia. And in biotech, it is still really unusual to have women in management. Um, usually the women in management at biotech companies are in the sort of softer side, which I actually find harder, which is like HR. Um, it's, <laughs> really, it's really unusual for a woman to be um, a founder of a biotech company. We're, we're a really rare breed. And I think in order to do that, you have to just realize that it's time to do this. And um, I was lucky, I think, I mean, I know I'm lucky because I've had all, I have all these connections with biotechnology. I could, the uh, first uh, interim uh, CEO at my company when I first started the company was a woman, uh, venture capitalist, which is also an unusual breed. Um, I think she probably embraced what I had to offer more than a man would have. I don't think it was because uh, my science, she viewed my science any other way. I think she just, intrinsically had more um, trust in, in a woman who is capable than I 
and I didn't have to really win her over like I did with the male VCs. I had to prove myself yet again to the male VCs more than to the female. So you have a unique perspective because you've seen it both on the university side and on the biotechnology side. And that transition, I'm sure, you know, it's interesting, but it's interesting to hear it kind of echo across even into the industry side. So, and I agree. I mean, I think, you know, I've spent lots of time in the biotech community here in San Diego even, and I see it myself that it is very rare to have somebody as a woman really leading on the science or the business side. And so it's fantastic to have people like you who are helping to kind of forge that path and help to really show everyone that it's a very possible thing for you to do. Right, right. Yeah, it used to be when I was in biotech, um, people in academia, I was in biotech and I was sort of uh, impinging on, um, on academic uh, sensibilities by, for example, reviewing the grants for the NIH or getting NIH grants. And I think that they had a knee-jerk reaction to say that I couldn't possibly be a real scientist because I was in biotech. And then when I just moved pretty smoothly into academia, then people in biotech said, well, you can't really know anything about business because you're an academic. So, um, you know, there's always, it's, it, it has definitely, you have to, you have to persevere. Um, and you have to, because people will have assumptions about you just based on what it is you were doing last or, or where, what, how they view you. And it's, you can't avoid that. You just have to be, um, you can't let people assume that you're not as good as you are. Well, and talk a little bit about that transition of, because now you are on that side of really moving in advanced therapy forward for patients, right? And I think probably the experience that you've had to be on both sides of that, both in the academic side and in the biotech side, and really uniquely positions you to accelerate that therapy for patients, which is fantastic for everyone who's waiting for hope. So talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so uh, the, um, I've been working on stem cells for a long time. And at the time that I moved from uh, biotech to academia, I had a very practical reason, and that was that I could not do human embryonic stem cell research in um, a business environment because of a patent that would uh, essentially claimed ownership of all human embryonic stem cells. So my way around that patent was not to quit working on embryonic stem cells, but was to move into a situation in which I would not be bound by that patent. So that worked out really well. Um, and I continued onward from there and, um, and found that my sort of practical approach to getting uh, being productive in science uh, led to me getting a lot of grants um, and that Essentially, I didn't need to come from anywhere like another. I didn't have to have a, a mentor uh, because I established my reputation on my own. And then when um, it became clear that, for example, I mean, there were a couple of, of, of reasons uh, that I decided that I'd move my program from the Scripps Research Institute into a company. Uh, one of them was that the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine was running low on funds and was my main funder. <clears throat> At one point, I'd hoped that they would be able to, to fund a clinical trial. But then when that was no longer possible because they were running out of money, I realized that the only way I was going to be able to do a clinical trial based on the work I'd done at Scripps was to leave Scripps um, because they don't do clinical trials. It's not a medical institution. It's, it's a purely research institution. 
So that's, uh, that was the alternative pathway. I think I was thinking about it for many years. I thought of it as a one way that I could do this because my real goal was to uh, do what I had, what I was really good at um, and to establish a technology and a trajectory um, that would lead to clinical trials that would lead to um, restoring function to people who have neurodegenerative disease. In terms of now, where you are, can you, I know that you're still in early stages of moving forward towards the clinic, but can you talk a little bit about what you've done to help to advance in that area? Yeah, I can. Um, it's actually gone really fast. When we, once I got a venture capital investment, um, it was a lot easier to get than a grant uh, from the NIH and it came a lot quicker. So we've been able to move faster now than we could when I was uh, in purely academic situation. So we have, um, we are now in uh, doing the preclinical work, which is required to file uh, a request for an investigational new drug with the FDA, with the FDA which we hope to do late well, next year, um, which would allow us to actually start a clinical trial right away after that. So that we're not really an early stage company in the sense that we uh, already had a trajectory. We're just following it faster than we were, we thought we could. Yeah. Well, and obviously advancing the type of therapy that you're moving forward for helping patients with neurodegenerative disease, you know, it's an area of clear unmet need within the community. So I would assume that there's some help from FDA as well in terms of accelerating potential therapies that really do offer hope like yours. Yes, yes. The FDA has a number of programs. They're a little bit uh, overwhelmed right now. You have to realize that the FDA has limited number of people and they have limited attention span. Um, I, I don't expect them to, um, to jump when I ask them something because they're dealing with a lot of COVID-19 stuff right now. Yes. Um, and, but my interactions with the FDA have been really positive. They're, they're really looking forward to the kind of approach that, that, that my colleagues and I have designed, uh, which uh, isn't just a stem cell approach, but it is a combination of, of some pretty sophisticated genomic analysis and stem cells. And uh, because of the way we've designed this, it's possible for us to uh, transplant cells to a person without having to um, give them immunosuppression. So it won't be like any kidney transplant. Um, because we make the, the, the in, uh, induced polypotent stem cells from the person themselves. And then our genomics enables us to really efficiently and carefully um, and inexpensively uh, produce the cell type that we want to transplant, which is dopamine neurons. And um, it's the genomics that allows us to uh, show that those cells will be efficacious and that they will be safe. Uh, so we don't have to go through the sort of conventional strategy of, of long-term and repetitive animal trials. It's the, I, one of my colleagues who's also working on this says it's the process, not the product, that you need to get approved if you're going to do an autologous therapy. Absolutely. Well, and I think you just said something really important there because I know, you know, the models in neurodegenerative disease and sort of animal modeling versus that translation to what happens when you get to the clinic and you're in humans, it's been problematic. So to be able to skip that step and go right to a therapy that actually uses the patient's own cells 
And I really like the unique approach that you're taking in terms of even the genomics profiling, right? And understanding how it is that you're delivering dopamine as a replacement through those cells, the patients who actually need it. It's just phenomenal. I mean, I think it's one of the most novel models in terms of moving forward with a therapeutic to the clinic. So congrats to you and the team on that. Thank you. Yeah, we, we decided this a long time ago and so sort of stubbornly stuck to it. And luckily it's gained traction over time. And I, I suspect that, uh, and I, by, I just gave a talk last week at a, at a stem cell meeting and, and understood um, over the years, people have become warmer and scientists have become warmer and warmer about this autologous approach and the pros and cons of, of doing that. Um, and I, and at this last meeting, it was quite clear that there are people waiting in the wings now that are going to move forward with their autologous uh, approaches. Fantastic. Well, and that's a great leading because I was going to ask you, what do you see as sort of advances that have happened in the field, either on the technology side or leadership side that have really stood out to you? Yeah, so the technology, of course, uh, the, the big breakthrough was Shinya Yamanaka's uh, generation of uh, induced pluripotent stem cells, which means you can match these pluripotent stem cells with any individual. And then since they are capable of making any cell type um, in the body, then presumably you, anything that needs replacing in, with some technical challenges involved um, could be replaced with your own cells. So some, some areas are moving faster than others. Um, there is already a, uh, an IND approval um, and a, a very soon there'll be a clinical trial for uh, an autologous therapy for um, AMD, which is uh, age-related macular degeneration. That uh, was a study that was uh, started at the NIH and has been carried through at the NIH, but it is the only other autologous therapy they're ahead of us and i'm i'm really pleased that there is at least somebody who's plowing a slight some of the path ahead of us but the, it was the same idea that if you could do autologous therapy it obviously made sense to do so so um you know the our uh, conferences like the international society for stem cell research it's kind of a mixed bag there's still almost entirely basic research um the um the session that I spoke in was, was strictly on preclinical development. Um, even finding enough people to speak in a session like that used to be impossible just a couple of years ago. Um, and this time we, there were enough people, but it was almost everybody. Um, but next year I suspect that there'll be a lot more choices because a lot more people will be in that exact position. So, and yeah. That's, that is such a, to me, that's a sign of progress, right? When you talk about other groups that are even moving forward with autologous therapies for AMD or more people that now can be in a session to speak about something. Because I can remember even when the paper published on iPSCs, like thinking, how do you do that from skin cells? Where would that ever go, right? And look where we are. And so, and I think that as you see more people entering that field and really pushing forward, you're the pioneers, right? The ones that are really setting that tone for here's the emerging opportunity for where we can go for a different type of therapeutics. So it's just fantastic to see that it's gaining momentum because sometimes I'm sure, almost like what we talked about earlier in terms of sometimes you're 
you know, the lone voice as a woman in the room, sometimes you're standing alone, even in terms of the approach that you're taking for therapy. And when you start yeah. to see- More than, than sometimes, Shanna, but yes, thank you. Yes, well, but when you start to see more people come on board, you know, that's a sign that, okay, this idea is not so crazy after all, and maybe it really does have some scientific merit and promise, and it's good for everybody to continue to see that. Yeah, and I'm really pleased people have called me crazy, and that's sort of like a badge of honor now. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, I often say, if it's not on the edge, then I must not be pushing myself hard enough, right? I mean, it's sort of, and I think we were just having a conversation, you know, as you know, I work in the space industry. And so in the space industry, we were talking about that whole concept of people who have these really broad visions that you can't even begin to understand how to put the tactical plan underneath it, but then you can achieve it, but only because you had that vision to start. Right. And so I think of even what's happening in advanced therapies is it's people like you who have to really think outside of the box and in that very non-traditional way to understand how we really make an advancement in science. So fantastic. And I can bring that back a little bit, Jenna, because when I go to see the, um, the SpaceX rocket take off and take the cells that we had generated up to the International Space Station, the, my main thought was, how could you, I mean, how simple would it be to put autologous uh, dopamine neurons into people's brains compared to launching a rocket like that? <laughs> exactly. Make, make everything seem feasible, you know? <laughs> well, and I know that you have a lot of interesting things like your work with the zoo, and but I'm not sure everybody knows that you are actually an officially rocket scientist. As well. <laughs> right. And a brain and, and, and a brain scientist too. Brain and rocket. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Well, and in terms of just to kind of end off, last question, big picture, what do you see 10 years from now? What do you think that will be maybe something that we can't find hard to imagine today that might be something that we'll be talking more about in terms of advanced therapies. Yeah, so I think that uh, the, there is, there's, um, gene therapies have already been become established and they're the norm for treatment of some diseases. I think wisely the, um, the companies that have developed these pure gene therapies have focused on rare diseases. Um, and then once you accomplish that um, and you get some feedback from treating a rare disease, then you can broaden it. Um, I think CAR T therapies, uh, treatment for cancer has uh, made it much more um, understandable that you can use cellular therapies. Um, in 10 years, I think there'll be routine uh, gene therapies for certain diseases. It just depends on which disease you're, you're talking about. But it won't be, there'll be a lot uh, more than pills uh, and a lot more than injections. Um, the the idea of permanently fixing something, I think, will be a reality for a number of diseases. Um, I'm hoping Parkinson's disease, and I'm, I'm also hoping in 10 years there'll be some uh, Alzheimer's disease progress uh, using a, sim a similar strategy. You sort of have to look at the problem and then decide whether, and in my case, I decide whether this, any of the skills that I actually have or any experience I have actually can do anything about that problem. Um, but there are lots of other people who have other skills and other experience. And so I'm, um, I, I think it's a, uh, I won't call it a renaissance uh, because there are always shortcomings. Uh, there are always things that could get in the way and maybe it won't fully bloom. 
but um, but I think that the uh, momentum is there now. And so there will be more and more successful cell therapies and more and more successful gene therapies. And they will be the therapies of choice. And they'll be, they won't be expensive. That's the other thing. That's nice. Well, you know, I've watched the transition in my own career from pills to biologics to cells. And I do agree that I think the next place that we're going is gene therapy. Right. And one of the things I think, you know, for all of the challenges that COVID-19 is presenting, it's also presenting a great learning opportunity to learn about viral infection. And I think in some ways, if there is an upside to everything that's going on with COVID-19, it could be that we learn a lot about how to infect cells and how to really control that process within the body. So hopefully that's something that does accelerate the progress in that field because I can see right on the horizon. It's almost like thinking about that stem cell. Wait, how do you make stem cells from skin? Like, I think we're going to start to get a handle on how to really do gene therapy and approach that discussion about curing as opposed to just treating. That's right. And I think if you're a scientist, there's always an upside. Yeah, I agree. I can, I cannot thank you enough. I know I've, we've taken a little bit more time today. Jana. I don't see you often enough. I know. I feel the same way. I feel the same way. But I really do appreciate the insights, and I thank you enough for sharing today. So. Yeah, thank you for arranging this, Jana. I appreciate it. I enjoyed Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I hope you have a great long weekend. Oh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> it's the way it is these days. And, uh, and I do hope I get to see you in person soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Within the next six months, I think is what we're hoping for. Yeah. Okay. Take care. Thanks. Much continued success to you guys. Thanks. Bye. Okay, bye. Brilliant interview there. And yeah, I'm really pleased with how frank that, um, that Jean really talks about the challenges that she faced um, in her, the earlier parts of her career and still um, is, is facing as, you know, being a rare woman at the, at the top of an organization. And, you know, she really is, I mean, the one thing that I took from it is just how comfortable she is with being a trailblazer um, and how comfortable she is with being, um, you know, with, with always, you know, with being a minority which you know is, is you know something that i also do sort of re you know resonates with me as well so yeah i thought that was really quite a cool interview it's a funny thing michael you know the, the people like gene and even you know don't blush but yourself the people that make it under those circumstances are almost necessarily you know quite beyond exceptional and and, and she clearly is that she she you're right farther up you move, uh, the harder it gets. Uh, you're at the dark horse. We, we pride ourselves on being a meritocracy mm. uh, with no ceilings. Uh, but it's still, it's still hard to, it's still hard to pull off for real. And we, we struggle with it. We're, we're open. We, we struggle with it. Uh, but we struggle with it as hard as we, as, as hard as we can. Yeah. But, yep. Jean's great. Jaina's great as well. Yes. I think she's, well, she's, we've actually got a couple of interviews where, where Jane has um, done the interview. She's, uh, she's got another one coming up with Emily Whitehead that we, that, yeah. that uh, I know she's, she's really excited about as well. But one thing that Jean mentioned that, um, you know, Anthony, you, you being over in California, she mentioned um, how 
at one point she was trying to get some funding and it didn't look like it was going to happen. I, you know, I've kind of been following that CERM story in the background for the last few years. And um, I understand that they are in the process of trying to get refunded. And yeah, um, yeah they just made the, the, the November ballot with a phenomenal number of signatures during this COVID era as well, which had to be handwritten uh, or hand delivered um, and posted, which is quite phenomenal. What's the, what's the news on the ground in California on that? Yeah, I think it's very interesting. That one of the things, even where I sit, um, there isn't much news on the ground. Um, now in, in America, and uh, California is no exception, these ballot initiatives, um, always seem to me to creep up on the electorate unawares. It, it, it's coincident with the federal elections, the state and federal elections later this year is when, when the, the ballot will be taken. So again, in normal times, you, you're kind of going to the ballot box anyway, uh, but every, every voting, every sincerely voting household in, in California typically spends the night before reading this, this massive document yeah. with Proposition P from the school district and Proposition Q about the town library and Proposition R about streetlights in the northern part of your town. And, you know, ah, and to a certain extent, these initiatives get buried. You know, this is a stage initiative, so it's not quite so, you know, quote-unquote trivial as those. Mm. But they sort of get buried in a morass of other stuff. Um, 600,000 signatures, I think was the number, right? Of, of, of at least, Very yeah, that is a really good number. Uh, I forget exactly what the threshold is, but that's for sure. Um, but California, you know, electorally is a funny place. There's uh, liberally aligned urban centers such as Los Angeles and the San Francisco Bay Area. And there's this kind of forgotten massive uh, conservative aligned hinterland in the Central Valley and other more far-flung counties. Uh, which won't necessarily have a, a strong enough opinion on this to vote yeah. either way. Last time around, Prop 71 um, was emphatically in response to the then Bush prohibition on federal embryonic stem cell research. That was then given an exit clause with the so-called Bush list of embryonic stem cell lines, which were exempted because they were brought into being prior to the Bush law. Mm. And that almost obviated the need for some before it even got off the ground. But once one of these ballot initiatives has been passed, they are almost impossible to revoke. So by that time, that's just a procedural law thing. Uh, so at that time, you know, the 3 billion US that was in that ballot initiative, it's going to be spent on something. Okay. So the firm organization, you know, wisely moved it out of embryonic stem cell research into stem cell research, then yeah. cell therapy research, and now really touching hard on gene modified cell research uh, to try and align with new clinical developments, which followed the, 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 the original ballot initiative. This November, they're asking, as you, as you hinted, they're asking for around about $5 billion, mm. uh, US, which is much more than inflation-adjusted equivalent. Um, I think the emphasis will switch to, you know, thoroughly to approved drugs, 
you know, did, did, did California get $3 billion worth or more of demonstrably new business from this ballot initiative? No, no nobody really thinks that. Was the CERM initiative you know, enormously influential in moving this field forward? I don't think anyone would disagree with that either. You know, it, it was, and a series of leaders culminating in Maria Malau and another of our interviewees uh, really, you know, just move the dial there. And again, as I think I mentioned in the interview with Maria, even three or five billion, Michael, pales into insignificance next to say that the Pfizer global R&D budget. Mm -hmm. And the, the joke I made with Maria in that interview was how could you possibly be expected to get anything done with so little money? Uh, which was, you know, not even a joke. It's a, it's a fair comment in our field. But even so, this is a mind boggling sum and I just don't know, Michael. I, I think, without getting too far into politics, I think given the current political situation in the States, uh, if as nothing more than a protest vote, I think it will do well. Yeah. Yeah. But this time round, a strong emphasis on actually seeing products come to market. It's a long educational process for the public on both how much it costs to develop new drugs and how long it takes. Mm. Well, good luck to them and let's, let's see how that pans out. So um, last couple of updates for this episode. First one, um, as we mentioned, that was a Women in Advanced Therapies special episode. And um, on that note, we're actually in the hunt for a couple of mentors as part of the Women in Advanced Therapies program. So if you are um, a uh, influential, a senior person within your role and looking to develop the next wave of, of young women within this field, um, and you're interested in mentoring, please do get in touch um, and find out more about the program just by dropping me an email at michael at facilitate.co.uk. And I just want to add something there, Michael. You just found a mentor for a young and talented woman in Dark Horse's California office. She is thrilled. Leave it there. We she can't believe she can't believe it's happened. Does, does she not want to be named? I'm not. Does she not want to be named? Rachel Purge in our BizOps group. Every every Dark Horse client goes through Rachel for all of our critical uh, paperwork and she's a smiling face on the Zoom meeting or the end of the phone and uh, crushes our paperwork in, 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 Brilliant. in amazing style. Uh, but it, it means, you know, it really brought home to me how much it means to these individuals. It's just a great thing that you're doing that. It was, honestly, it is one of the most rewarding things I do when um, I'm able to connect someone like Rachel and she's working with Jennifer Manning um, and Jennifer yeah. Manning is a executive director at um, at Fujifilm um, Fujifilm um, Diasynth. So long, very strong business orientated background within cell and gene therapy, and um, and yeah, I remember you and and Rachel saying that yeah, she's really in the biz ops side of things, and it just made me think yeah, I think there's a good connection there. And Jennifer. Um, yeah, Jennifer's, Jennifer's got a lot of experience in that and was just ready to, 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 to connect with her. And, and I think they started off really well. So, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm just so glad that we can do stuff like this, especially when we can't meet each other face to face. Yeah. It's another way that we can just allow people to connect. So if you want to be a part of that program, 
um, as a mentor or as a mentee, um, we're always happy to help. So drop me an email uh, at michael at facilitate.co.uk. And in the show notes, I'll also put the link to the Women in Advanced Therapies program uh, landing page as well. So you can find out more about that. Last notice from me. Um, so unfortunately, um, due to um, obvious reasons, we've had to uh, postpone our European um, show, Advanced Therapies Europe, which would have been in London um, this September. And obviously, Anthony, that would have been your chance to go back to London um, for, for a few days and, and hang out with me and, and obviously see some friends and family, I imagine. Um, so that's been postponed. But ne nevertheless, I'm still disappointed that it's ha not happening. No, it's yeah. terrible, Michael. I, I can't believe it. I'm still in denial. We all we all miss this stuff more than we realize. Uh, don't miss something until it's taken away from you. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, my colleagues and I were talking about this meeting the other day, a bunch of people from uh, uh, from around the, the podium there. And uh, it's uh, we all have to learn new skills now because uh, these things are these things are falling like dominoes, unfortunately. Yeah, so true. But what we've done instead, we've got, so we've got a membership base of around, I think it's 1,600 members at last count. And as a member of Facilitate, you get access normally to, you know, member meetups that we host across the year. Um, obviously, you get access to exclusive content that we develop. Um, but what we thought we'll do is actually create a member meeting, a virtual member meeting this time around in September over the same dates of the European conference. Um, but it's not going to be so heavy on presentations and, and slide decks and so forth, but actually be more based around picking up the right kind of sort of round table, um, some, some fun networking, some fun experiences. We're doing a little pub quiz as well. Um, so a little member meetup that's completely free to attend. Um, and Maybe yeah, that's a pub quiz. Have you not been doing quizzes over the, over lockdown? Yes. We're doing a facilitate pub quiz. We've oh, got right. therapies questions thrown in as well. Who's buying? Are you, are you not buying as usual, Michael? We did think about that, but shipping expensive cocktails across the world. Blah, blah, blah. And Michael's latest <laughs> excuse for not buying. Uh, yeah. So, unfortunately, I don't, uh, once again, I don't buy it around. Yeah. But if you want to sign up for that, if, and if you're not a member already, then this is your perfect opportunity to become a member. Um, and you can do so as part of the registration process, completely free of charge. Get yourself over to www.advancedtherapiesconnect.com and sign up for our free virtual event taking place this September. Please sign up. I miss you all, mostly. We, exactly. Have you signed up yet, Anthony? No, but I will. Get, get, get your team signed up. Get yeah, ready. we will. Good, good. Um, and you know what? That's all, folks, for another episode. We'll see you all soon. See you all soon. Take care. Mm -hmm.